Riley Doyle is the founder, CEO, and technical lead of Desktop Genetics, a London-based bioinformatics company established in 2012 that specializes in processing data from the breakthrough CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technique. Riley holds a Bachelor's of Engineering from Dartmouth College, a Bachelor's of Arts in Biochemistry from Colby College, and an MPhil in Bioscience Enterprise from the University of Cambridge. Also prior to desktop genetics, he had over 10 years of laboratory-based genetic engineering experience and worked at Genentech, which is widely considered to be the Google of biotechnology. I recorded my conversation with Riley back on the floor of PyCon 2017 in May, so let's start. So thanks so much for being on today, Riley. Thank you. So in layperson's terms, what is CRISPR exactly? So I'm still working on a good layperson definition for it. Um, the definition I gave to the, the software engineers here at PyCon is it's uh, find and replace. It's like set for DNA. Uh, mm -hmm. So as you would go through your source code looking for a particular pattern uh, and change it to something else to fix a bug, you would do the same thing for a cell and then mm -hmm. thus uh, reprogram its behavior. But coming sort of from this definition, there's a lot of weird quirks because in your cell, all of the source files are all collectively together in one namespace, the mm. genome. <laughs> right. Whereas when you're searching on your computer, you're allowed to focus your search on one particular file or range of lines in a file. Mm -hmm. And CRISPR doesn't give you that. So you have to make sure your pattern is crafted particularly accurately so that you only edit the thing you want to edit and don't cause any side effects. Okay. But I would say more generally, uh, CRISPR technically is a bacterial immune system used mm -hmm. to protect them from viruses. We've taken the technology or the sort of the naturally occurring CRISPR machinery and mm -hmm. hijacked it to go and edit a whole range of cells. Uh, but it is essentially this idea of find and replace for DNA. Okay. So um, I've heard lots of uh, startup advice state that it's always best to start a company that solves a problem that you've had personally. So what led you and your co-founders to start a company in the space I guess, what exactly is the problem that desktop genetics is trying to solve? Yeah, so there's, uh, we've moved away from that uh, a bit because of our sort of growth into the CRISPR, which didn't exist back uh, when I was really in the lab. Mm -hmm. But originally, the, and the fundamental technology of the company is around DNA search. Mm -hmm. uh, the reasoning for that is back at Genentech, I remember uh, trying to find a plasma that would constitutively express this protein. And despite having every limb system and ELN and other tool known to man mm -hmm. uh, and like six different DNA databases, I still couldn't find this plasmid until one day uh, at a lunch meeting, uh, mm -hmm. a colleague in the lab next to me says, oh yeah, I made that three years ago and oh. it's in the back of our freezer. Yeah, yeah. And so it was really around, I, I was just like, well, this is just such a waste of time, right? Mm -hmm. There's got to be a better way uh, of managing information in the laboratory. And that's what really kicked off uh, the DNA search engine that underpins the DeskJump platform. Okay. And then the mm -hmm. sort of application of that in CRISPR is now sort of our key uh, use case for this technology. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this DNA search engine, um, is there some sort of like, is it specialized? Is it technically special compared to another string, uh, typical string search engine? Yeah. One of the biggest changes we had to do in this context is allow it for what we call chimeric searching, which mm -hmm. is that when your um, pattern is allowed to be composed of multiple texts. So it would be that I want to get this chunk of DNA, say from chromosome one, and this chunk from chromosome two, or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is really useful when you're looking at genome editing vectors, which are composed of different bits and parts from all over 
the genome and the sort of part catalog that a scientist has in their lab. Mm. Um, when we actually go and do, say, CRISPR off-target prediction, the search is actually done in a fairly specialized way for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say those are a number of key tricks that have to be done. So mm. compared to, say, a very general string search algorithm, there's a lot of uh, hyper-specialization you do for performance reasons and to get the actual result you want. Um, Okay. The way I sort of break it down is that you can think of there's this sort of uh, index data structure that you might get from a computer science textbook. Yeah. And there's this sort of system acting on top of that that actually answers a user's question in a way that's meaningful to a biologist. Okay. Okay. So, how did you meet your co-founders, uh, Eddie and Victor? Um, was there some sort of mental checklist of uh, list of checkboxes or selection process involved uh, for you? Yeah, it was interesting. So uh, Eddie joined first uh, at the end of our graduate program. We were getting ready to do the final round mm. of the business plan competition. And then we brought Victor on board uh, after that. Um, and we did our sort of final presentation together. Mm -hmm. And we had worked together previously on a number of projects, and yeah. I'd also been to a number of the sort of like co-founder meet and greets that they set up as part the of the, dating the business stuff. plan competition. Mm -hmm. so. um, and it was really interesting because at the time I was like really focused on trying to find a technical co-founder. Mm -hmm. Yet, ironically, ultimately, Vegas became the technical co-founder <laughs> out of necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and both Eddie and Victor are really strong public speakers. Uh, they know the subject material very well and are very passionate about it. We mm -hmm. actually all uh, arranged a trip to go visit Ginkgo Bioworks in Boston when we were on our field trip there. And okay. that's where we sort of all realized we were all interested in the same sort of problem mm -hmm. space in biology. Yeah, so the three of you just have very good domain knowledge. Um, and I'm guessing like the, the chemistry between the three of y'all also worked out, no pun intended. Yeah, we work well together. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's the most important mm -hmm. part. You know, it's particular skill sets are actually, that's easy to recruit for, but mm -hmm. having uh, just a generally effective working relationship and just having really smart co-founders, that is much harder to recruit for. And it's really helpful that we had been able to work together on so many projects before. Okay, that's awesome, yeah. So, um, has desktop genetics, uh, I, I know you probably answered part of this earlier when you uh, said that CRISPR came on like um, even like after, or it blew up like a bit after As, the founding. Yeah, it was like six months after effectively. Yeah, so was the original uh, plan for desktop genetics mostly centered around the problem you had originally where you know you're sort of wasting time uh, without this like sort of digital database of uh, DNA? Yeah, the original, original plan was actually to make a DNA printer. Uh, a DNA printer? So that would what automate that cloning yeah. and assembling your DNA molecules for you. Okay. And uh, what we came to realize, and I think anyone who works in automation will tell you, mm -hmm. is that the hardware has actually far outstripped the capabilities of the AI and the software mm -hmm. for controlling these automation systems. Mm -hmm. And so lab robots, uh, car manufacturing robots, they're all really good at doing the same process over and over again efficiently, but the setup costs are very high. Right. And so the frontier right now is can you make a smart automated system that can sort of self-program in a way mm -hmm. uh, from a high level description of the problem and figure out what it needs to do from there. Okay. So a lot of it, I guess, all has to do with the cost uh, and initial setup for hardware. Yeah, well, um, also it's the cost of programming. So you can go and buy a liquid handling robot, but it will take yeah. you longer to program it than to just ah, do it yourself. I see. And then you have to reprogram mm -hmm. it again and again. Yeah. The art is really in the ability to be customized about this. Mm -hmm. 
The other problem, though, that we dug into once we learned more about the unit economics is uh, these lab robots are just really expensive. Yeah. Um, now, I think OpenTrons has come along with a much cheaper platform, which is really exciting mm -hmm. uh, because they had particular contacts in uh, Shenzhen for sourcing all of the oh. stepper motors and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that they that's very good. Mm -hmm. Um, but we were uh, basically you were looking at something like a mid-priced car is how right. much these things would normally cost. Yeah, and th they don't actually even solve the problem. The problem is actually in the software mm. and in the data management and everything else that needs to go into it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard software is definitely a leaner way to go. Yeah, mm -hmm. so just like with any startup, right? You start off with one concept of the problem, but that as you dig into it and start mm -hmm. building out your business and speaking to customers, you learn actually the real problem is something else entirely. Okay. Cool. The other thing I think that affected that change was we uh, really early on uh, were coming into a pitch session and we sat down and we thought, well, what skills do we actually have to deliver hmm. here? And really where we had competency and the ability to make an impact was on the software side of things because none of us come from a mechanical engineering background or had worked in hardware devices before. Hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. So, um, speaking of like uh, skills and, uh, and costs, um, so how different has y'all's experience been uh, raising money as a London-based company as opposed to, say, being in the Bay Area? Or, or is a biotech slash hard, quote-unquote, hard startup fundraising just totally different from your run-of-the-mill consumer app or enterprise SaaS? I would say both uh, yes and yes. Okay. Um, the <laughs> raising money in London is generally different and raising money in biotech is also different. Mm -hmm. So um, biotech is a very insular industry and tends to have its own specialist investors and they have a very different uh, pattern and set of metrics that they look for mm -hmm. because effectively all pharma companies are all about uh, rent extraction on patent rights for the duration of that patent life when the drug is approved on market, right? right. So the goal is, right, yeah, I'm gonna invest you know, the billion dollars or whatever to bring this drug to market. We're going to extract that money when it happens. And so the startups in this space are really about, we need to have some sort of IP asset, mm -hmm. some sort of patent monopoly, and we're going to take that down a clinical path until, say, phase one or two, where we then partner up or license it to a larger pharma company mm -hmm. who can run trials around the world and sort of handle the larger distribution and things like that that we need. Uh, mm -hmm. To give you maybe an analogy, it would be like if um, all the cloud service providers were closed source and that yeah. you could not just run your you know, run on Amazon or Google's infrastructure mm. and instead had to get your app to like, when you were ready to deploy, you mm. then had to like partner with Google to run your app on their infrastructure and I then see. they took actually all of like half the revenue in certain markets. Mm -hmm. That would be maybe the sort of analogy. So biotech's a bit quirky and weird in its own way like that. Yeah. Um, there isn't really yet an AWS for biotech, but mm -hmm. there's some companies working on that. Okay. Um, now in London um, and in Europe more generally, the investors do tend to be a bit more conservative, uh, especially mm -hmm. compared to the West Coast. Yeah. Basically, the further east you go, the more conservative the investors get. <laughs> and uh, there it tends to be more of an emphasis on uh, risk management and capital efficiency rather than I will give you, you know, 40 million, but then you need to make a billion dollar business out of it. I see. Right. So mm. in the U.S. you have much higher expectations around mm. value that needs to be created, which to be honest, if people haven't really validated their market, might not be possible. And we've actually seen a number of U.S. startups just give money back to the VCs because mm. they're like, yeah, we just, there's no business model here that can hit the types of returns. Right. Uh, sort of as a rule of thumb, you need to be able to uh, 
re a single investment that they make needs to be able to return the entire fund. Mm. So right, when you yeah. have a really big fund, that's mm. a really big exit that you need to be able to produce. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're making tools for like other developers or things like that, maybe there's other models like uh, with super angels or bootstrapping and things that GitHub did in the early days, right, mm -hmm. that are maybe more appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that uh, there are some companies that are trying to be like uh, AWS or biotech. And I know AWS has had a tremendous impact on you know the rise of uh, SaaS startups and just like any pure software startup in general because it greatly reduce the costs of uh, starting a software startup. So what are some of those uh, companies, what are the companies in that space? Yeah, so Emerald Cloud Lab and Transcriptic are two that come to mind, mm -hmm. uh, who actually have the facility available. And I yeah. believe there are others um, coming online, mm -hmm. uh, or other businesses who have this unused infrastructure and are moving into this space. This is like a har hardware infrastructure. Hardware infrastructure, okay. yeah. So we're talking, you know, uh, 10 to, hundreds of millions in capital equipment mm. that is effectively just sitting there gathering dust. What you have to remember is that any reasonable piece of lab equipment costs as much as a, like a BMW, mm. right? Yeah. So you want to keep these things always moving. Mm. Um, and in fact, I actually, maybe we'll get there one day, I uh, think the pharma industry could start doing this too. They have tons of surplus equipment. That or equipment isn't being used. Right, yeah. exactly. Idle, yeah. Now, one, there's a lot of difficulties in the automation of that equipment, mm. um, right? It's serial buses and RS-232. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. So uh, Point of sale systems, yeah. Then <laughs> a lot of effort to write drivers and things like that. Mm. Um, and so there's some really interesting projects like the Antha language, which is based on Go, uh, to try and open source some of this and create a better way of moving protocols between laboratories so they can be sort of compiled locally for that hardware and run. Hmm. Wow, okay, very cool. So um, I think that a lot of uh, very talented software engineers are working on, uh, to borrow a few words from Peter Thiel, um, quote unquote, bits and not atoms. Um, what comes to mind includes things like uh, some of my friends and classmates working at, say, Snapchat to make algorithms for face filters, et cetera. Um, you know, I'm not making like a moral judgment on that. Uh, I'm just saying that that is a thing. Um, however, I, I think that some related press, such as this article that came up from the Y Combinator blog called uh, Hacking DNA, the story of CRISPR, Ken Thompson, and the Dream Drive, um, as well as major events like Jennifer Doudna, who is a, a leading figure in the discovery and the founding of CRISPR, um, giving the keynote at South by Southwest Interactive. Uh, I think that events like these are giving synthetic biology a lot more hype than ever. So uh, with that, what are your thoughts on innovation at the level of atoms and not bits? And what do you think that software engineers with no biology experience can do uh, in order to get into synthetic biology? So there are a couple pieces to that. Mm. Um, the first one I would say is that biology is actually a data science. Okay. It is first and foremost a data science, but it's not taught that way mm -hmm. in schools. Right now it's taught like cooking. Right. And it's taught like, uh, yeah, it's literally taught like the cordon bleu or something like mm -hmm. that, where you have to apprentice to a master chef and learn, you know, the, the good hand technique for micro-injection and western blotting. But actually <laughs> what you should be focused on is how do you analyze and process a noisy and non-linear data set. Mm -hmm. And so the intersection with data science is really obvious there. Um, it's harder for me to say for someone coming in from outside of a life sciences background, because I've been working in you know the lab since I was 15, right? Yeah. I've just been in it so long. I would say um, 
biology has a lot of vocabulary and I think that intimidates people and mm -hmm. so if you can get through that part of it uh, you know then you're pretty much set mm -hmm. it actually isn't that hard except there is a lot of tacit knowledge in the laboratory again that you're not going to get from sort of more lecture-based courses okay. and so I would actually say the best thing to do um, and something I did really early on is actually job shadow people in laboratories mm. and see what they're doing and what problems that they have. They are actually all quite keen to work with software developers. They almost always will have data analysis problems to deal with. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's actually quite a lot of opportunities there. Um, not every department though sort of fosters that collaboration between the CS department and say the biochemistry department. Yeah. But if you're an adventurous and sort of more entrepreneurial student, I think there's a great opportunity there. Mm. Okay. Well, what are your opinions on like getting a PhD? Like if you're getting into software engineering or entrepreneurship? A PhD in what is a really is a key part of okay. it. Okay. So okay. Uh, a PhD in computer science, if you want to be a professor, is of course a job requirement. Right. But if you want to be an engineer at Google, less so. I actually think maybe your open source contributions and things like that, more valuable. code competitions, hackathons, things like that are actually probably more useful. Hmm. Um, in uh, the life sciences today, a PhD is almost always required. Hmm. And the reasons for that have to do with there's just a lot of people looking for jobs in general hmm. and uh, there are more PhDs than there are jobs and so uh, it is quite competitive, especially if you want a job in industry. Um, mm. Beyond the sort of postdoc level, those are very competitive, and uh, people sometimes have to do two or even three postdocs to get positions at some of the elite biotech companies. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah it, and it's these just, are like laboratory like positions, like in the wet lab. You would need a PhD or. Yes and no. Mm. I think it's a really complicated one because, uh, on the other hand, you can actually overqualify yourself for number a number of roles mm. uh, in the laboratory because there is actually a whole army of staff scientists, research associates, and technicians and things like that in these companies as well, mm. who have to run all these instruments, pull samples, uh, run um, you know the pilot plant, run manufacturing, and all of that. Where you actually don't need a PhD, but what you do need is an in, and uh, sort of breaking into the industry tends to be quite difficult. Yeah. Um, okay. But of course, given the choice between someone with and without a PhD, it's difficult. Technically, for biotech hiring, it's really all skill-driven mm. uh, for the most part at the entry level, right? You know, have you actually done this particular assay or thing in the lab? Do mm. you know how to make a good souffle, right? Right. Do you, you know if you're a pastry chef, you're judged on your cooking mm. in, in the lab, so it is there. I see. Okay. Okay. Do you wish that uh, more computer science majors got into synthetic biology? So I actually think the electrical engineers and software engineers who've moved into moved into biotech, uh, yeah. synthetic biology, have done some of the most amazing work out there because they bring such a fresh perspective, yeah. set of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think if you want to see some of that, if you go to like the IWBDA conference every year, mm -hmm. um, which really focuses on this, this is the, the International Workshop on Biodesign Automation, yeah. you can see actually some of the latest and greatest tools. I mean, there are whole languages out there for specifying uh, gene networks and how a cell should wow. behave and then reverse compiling them down into the DNA sequence you need to synthesize, mm -hmm. simulating the interactions of proteins and DNA. Uh, we'll be presenting there about how you know we can go and do forward engineering of guide mm. RNAs, for example, based on modeling, which is just a very different mindset that yeah. people traditionally have in the uh, re more reductionist 
paradigm of biochemistry. Mm. Okay, cool, cool. So what are some example tasks that uh, an engineer would do at desktop genetics that differ from work at uh, typical tech companies? So I think the biggest difference in terms of our tech stack uh, mm -hmm. that you would see is that we would never need to handle the number of requests per second that Google or Spotify or Facebook do. Yeah. Right. They have very broad products. Mm -hmm. Our product is very narrow but very deep. Mm -hmm. So one request can have an enormous amount of computation behind it. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, completely changes the types of problems you would see as a, a back-end engineer, as a site reliability engineer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you're not going to, you know, your usage pattern, we call it the rogue wave, right? It's like nothing mm. happens, and then a huge request <laughs> will come in because they're designing their guide RNA that afternoon, right? Yeah. And they're making tons of requests very quickly, mm. and they disappear again. Yeah, and this is international, right? So, yeah. you know, at any time of the day, yeah, like the afternoon happen. in particular, <laughs> I, I think it has to be like right before or after lunch in Boston or something mm. like that. It's uh -huh. a particularly busy time. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. So we can see it. There's, a, there's definitely a sort of circadian rhythm to it. Mm. Um, the other thing you have to remember is that biotech software uh, historically and even now is incredibly I.O. intensive. Right. So mm. you just have a large files, like raw genome sequence and get it for one person is usually half a terabyte or more, hmm. so yeah, half a terabyte or more. Uh, and it is not in a clean format always, and you yeah. have to do a lot of denoising and processing of it. So hmm. um, there's a lot of what I would call uh, data engineering, uh, ETL, or sort of the post-ETL style of, you know, data pipeline right. management and yeah. construction. Uh, that needs to be taken into consideration, mm. um, especially in the context of a very I.O. system, which actually a lot of cloud providers aren't quite set up to handle so well, mm. um, because they're optimized more for, say, web applications uh, with heavy amounts of in-RAM caching. Right. Okay. I see. So it seems like the the problem that, you know, the engineering problems that uh, companies like Snapchat, Google, Facebook, et cetera, these are inverted uh, in a sense. Because you Absolutely. have lower traffic and uh, much larger like I/O and computational uh, load as well. Right. Right. Okay. Um, that yeah, that was different. And mm. so languages like Python here, you know, at PyCon work really mm. well, and I think that's why it's become one of the dominant languages in bioinformatics mm -hmm. for everything but those really those like two or three function calls that just can take literally a week to execute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in which case then it's all about sort of high performance scientific computing stack. Right. Okay. And so you get into some mm. really uh, interesting areas. I would say the other thing that's quite different mm -hmm. is, um, you know, financial services really focus on time series data. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. We focus on string, right? Strings are one of the big data types in bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. And so I always had to talk about, you know, all the nitty-gritty details around Unicode and ASCII and oh, yeah. know, code points and all, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like that <laughs> kind of stuff comes up, yeah. right? You know, how you have to normalize these things and be able to search through them efficiently. Hmm. Um, so that, that comes up quite a bit, as well as uh, 3D geometry when they do the protein structural biology. That's another yeah. sort of quite distinct point. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, let's, let's switch gears for a bit. Uh, Talk about the future, I guess. Uh, I guess I think everything we've been talking about is in pretty like uh, bleeding edge. So, uh, but what do you think is the most probable existential threat facing us today? And what do you think that students or young people now should pursue or advocate 
in order to mitigate that risk? You know, uh, if you had asked me that question uh, a year ago, I would have said, uh, you know, climate change mm -hmm. or food security. Yeah. I actually think right now it is uh, fake news and this sort of uh, general allergic reaction we seem to have to facts and the yeah. truth. And the fact that actually, even with all of this amazing work in AI, mm -hmm. AIs can't actually discern truth from fiction very efficiently uh -huh. and tell you the veracity of a statement. And, uh, you know, we see this, of course, in uh, the news and on, you know, Facebook posts and things like that for political reasons. But actually, in science, it's also a big problem. Mm -hmm. The number of retractions continues to go up. There is a reproducibility crisis. I was going to bring that up. The yeah. ability to actually validate other people's findings and reproduce them is becoming harder, not easier. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we are going, this is an excellent area for software and people with a background in software to tackle those problems. And it's something certainly that young people today are going to have to grow up with and deal with. Mm. Um, and I actually think young people are very well placed to do so. Uh, the digital natives, as we move into the workforce, right, are yeah. going to have a really big impact because we have grown up with all of these tools and like, well, why don't we use them to solve these problems here too, mm. right? Why do we continue to, you know, settle for like, oh, it can't be done, it's computationally infeasible. I mean, how many times have we seen something that appeared to be impossible mm. a decade ago uh, happen with, say, you know, AlphaGo and some of these other approaches? Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, time for the, uh, the fun question round. Uh, <laughs> that's very short, but uh, so what's your favorite city in the whole world? Well, I actually really liked Austin, Texas uh, when I was okay. there for South by Southwest. That yeah. was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, great people, uh, fantastic food, and mm. I was warm finally coming from London. Uh, yeah, so right. That was nice, yeah. even though it was a bit rainy this year. Okay. Uh, so I had a lot of fun there. Mm. Um, but I'm also excited to be here in Portland as well. It's been a cool. while since I've been in the Northwest, so it's cool. I see. Okay. Um, so how long have you been in, in London? Like. I've been in London uh, going on six years now. Wow. And okay. Yeah, it's um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster because the, uh, you know, the immigration rules keep getting stricter and stricter. Uh, Brexit's happened. But yeah. There's so much going on too. It's a city that's continually reinventing itself. Mm. And by the time you went to all of the amazing free things there are to do, right. there'd be all sorts of new ones coming on. Right. Yeah. There's just so much to see. It's like New York and L.A. and Chicago all rolled into mm. one. Yeah, it's very cosmopolitan, and yeah. Okay, so who do you think I should interview in the future? That is a good question. Um, I think some of the people presenting at IWBDA uh, yeah. could be interesting, uh, especially mm. people working on, say, microfluidics and some of the work going on there. That mm. could be pretty cool. Um, I think uh, there's one group that's quite interesting, which is that Cell and gene therapy are here. People sort of think this is cyber. No, like you can actually go and buy these products now. Yeah. Uh, and so there's some amazing work going on at the various research hospitals and the, with a number of pharma companies in that space, mm. uh, which is really cool because it's going to be a whole new sort of therapeutic modality, right? Right. And it's something yeah. that our healthcare system isn't really set up to handle right now. So mm. I think there's going to be a number of interesting things happening in that space as well. Okay. Awesome. Any last words? Uh, no, I'm all set here. It was uh, a right. pleasure. And, you know, I think the one thing people think they need to go and have a, 
a degree in biochemistry before trying to tackle mm. these problems or read a paper. And I say, no, just try. Like, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. And, and it works both ways. Likewise, um, we were talking to some people over lunch, and mm. uh, a lot of people are put off from learning programming. Like, oh, I have to get a degree in computer science. No, you don't. Yeah. It's the same with biology. Right. It works both ways. And okay. I think the sort of two disciplines are like mutually intimidated by each other. Right. <laughs> and I, no, don't be. Right. Give okay. it a try. And or uh, make a friend, team up, and uh, yeah. tackle the problem together. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Riley. Yeah, my yeah, pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> if you enjoyed listening to this, subscribe to our social media accounts for updates. If you have any ideas for guests, panels, hosting, or sponsorship opportunities, do contact us at eShipCast on Twitter, eShipCast on Facebook, or Rainier at utexas.edu. Thanks for listening.